Welcome to the White Coats on Call podcast series brought to you by the Medical Society of Virginia Political Action Committee. These first four episodes of the podcast series will share the most important issues facing physicians for the 2018 General Assembly session. Each episode features an interview with a key Virginia physician legislator. I'm Sarah Rose Wells, Assistant Director of Government Affairs, and you're listening to episode three of the series featuring Delegate Scott Garrett. Delegate Garrett, it's good to see you. Hey, Ralston, good to see you as well. Thank you. Thanks with so you. much for coming in. My name is Ralston King. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Government Affairs at the Medical Society of Virginia. Here with Delegate Scott Garrett, represents the 23rd House District, City of Lynchburg, parts of Bedford and Amherst. Delegate Garrett, thanks for being with us. Delegate Garrett, as many of you all know, is a retired general surgeon, uh, been involved in organized medicine for years, was the past president of the Lynchburg Academy of Medicine. And uh, now we have the pleasure of him representing uh, uh, really the whole Commonwealth uh, for the medical community at the General Assembly. So thank you for being here. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in organized medicine, what it meant to you, uh, you know, years back as you were coming up as a general surgeon, you had a family in Lynchburg. What did that mean to you to be part of your professional organization? Sure, Ralston. Well, first of all, thank you and the Medical Society for having me today. I've been a member of the Medical Society of Virginia since 1989 when I uh, finished my residency training at University of Florida and came back home to Lynchburg. So. Uh, I've appreciated all that MSV has done over the years, and this is certainly a time, if, if, if no other time, where our voice needs to be concerted, needs to be single, needs to be clear, and needs to be unified. Uh, there are many that folks out there that uh, want to define our values for us, whether our values are unique to our profession or, or frankly, our patients' values, and uh, I think it's incumbent upon us to stand up for them. Uh, Twelve years ago, I uh, stopped uh, practicing at the ripe old age of 48 in Lynchburg as a general surgeon. And um, I was pretty frustrated with the way things are going in the city of Lynchburg at the time. So I ran for Lynchburg City Council and won. Doesn't hurt when you've operated on 13,000 folks in the community, literally one out of every 10 that we meet. And um, after four years of service there, um, uh, Richmond sort of comes calling and I've served now as the delegate for uh, the 23rd district, as you said, parts of the city of Lynchburg, Bedford, and Amherst County for the last eight years. Wow, wow, that's remarkable. And you've you've taken a very uh, monumental role within the the House of Delegates and just the General Assembly in general. You've been part of the COPN Work Group, Joint Commission on Healthcare, the Mental Health Subcommittee, which is also known as the Deeds Commission. You're on the Appropriations Committee, HWI. Um, you've really stepped into a pivotal time where physicians are needed, um, and healthcare uh, certainly is is a big question mark right now. Tell us a little bit about uh, the elections of what happened here back in November and, and talk to us about how that transformation happened and what you believe is kind of uh, the reason for the change in the House. And now we have a physician who's going to become governor. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Governor-elect Morton as well. Surely. So you mentioned first the, uh, the elections on November the 7th. A uh, very, a very sea change um, election, a, a wave election that happened. Uh, as a conservative Republican, I lost a lot of friends that uh, did not get reelected. There were very, very good representatives in their districts. It's just um, there's a different mood out there. There's a different anger that um, I think reflected itself uh, in this in these past elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, public health lost a great deal on that election when our dear friend uh, Delegate John O'Bannon yeah. from uh, from Henrico uh, did not uh, win reelection. John has been an absolute stalwart for just common sense healthcare um, issues and values going forward. He has stood resolute for our patients. And when you stand for our patients, you'll stand for our uh, profession. 
So that's going to create uh, uh, a challenge for us all. John has been a, a real repository of a lot of institutional knowledge over the years. Uh, the, uh, as we speak today, uh, there are three recounts that are coming up this week, but as we speak today, the makeup of the House of Delegates will be uh, 51 rep, uh, Republicans and 64 and, and 49 um, uh, Democrats, down from uh, 66 Republicans. So we've lost 22% of the members of the House Republican Caucus, and, and yet we'll continue to have the same amount of work product. So all of us are really going to need to uh, to buckle down, and um, uh, we, we're going to need to get a lot of our other delegates up to speed with the health care issues uh, going going forward. Uh, you're exactly correct. Uh, health care is on the minds of a lot of folks. It was the defining issue, uh, the, the top priority issue for so many folks in exit polling at, mm -hmm. after this uh, statewide election, uh, but a variety of ways of addressing that. I think folks uh, believe that uh, we need better health care, and particularly in Southside Virginia, Southwest Virginia, and along the valley, mm -hmm. tremendous uh, access issues in those areas, uh, and yet how are we going to pay for it? Um, um, it, it? It's an economic model that uh, there, it is still in evolution mm -hmm. as we move more towards managed care, particularly with Medicaid right. services moving forward. Um, so I think there are a lot of, a lot of moving parts. I will say this categorically for all of our uh, physician uh, colleagues and, and the healthcare uh, field in general. The world is run by those that show up. Mm -hmm. The world is run by those that show up and uh, we need our folks to, to show up and to help educate all of right. the delegates and senators right. regarding healthcare. Speaking to access, um, you were there this morning as the governor presented his uh, biennial budget and yes. he included Medicaid expansion through the provider assessment tax. Um, Medicaid expansion has been you know, a topic for him for the last four years and um, has never gotten through the General Assembly. You mentioned the financial concerns. What do you envision, whether it be a 1115 waiver or a 1332 waiver, provider assessment tax, regular Medicaid expansion, do you envision any of those happening in regards to access and, and really potentially solving some of these insurance issues that we're facing daily with our patients? So prior to November the 7th, mm -hmm. uh, we've had seven recorded votes over the last four years in uh, uh, current Governor uh, Terry McAuliffe's really chaotic um, uh, zeal to expand Medicaid. Um, uh, we've had six recorded votes uh, over four years, lots of conversations, yeah. a lot of different paths, a lot of different uh, options to how uh, we might consider expanding Medicaid. At the end of the day, a million Virginians are covered today under Medicaid, about one in every eight Virginians. Um, Governor McAuliffe wants to extend or expand that service by 30%, add another 300,000 folks onto those um, onto those roles. He wants to pay for it with a, a creative uh, uh, financing mod uh, process, whereby um, they basically they reimburse hospitals uh, at a higher rate in exchange for getting a special assessment on those hospitals, right. and then uh, there's some of that funding gets returned uh, from the feds uh, through the match, the 50-50 match that typically. Um, we have enjoyed and, and or we've utilized in mm -hmm. Virginia. Uh, a lot of conversations need to happen. Uh, Governor McAuliffe tried uh, to interject this into the budget two years ago. Um, he wanted a 6% assessment uh, that was in, in, intended to generate about a billion dollars of new money each year. And, um, and that simply was not, um, that wasn't going anywhere then. All of that was before November 7th. Different day and time. I think there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty, Ralston. Mm -hmm. I've certainly heard it as I've gotten around and talked to our physician, my physician yeah. colleagues, and 
in the Lynchburg area. Right. A lot of uncertainty of, of moving forward. Um, I don't think there's a sea change of opinion about um, the challenges of expanding um, the Medicaid program in general. We don't have enough providers, hospitals, doctors, nurses, nursing homes that today are accepting new Medicaid patients and certainly in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. and, and also to that point, um, I truly believe the Commonwealth needs to keep its commitments. The people are crying out for trust. Black, white, rich, poor, young, old, men, women, Republicans mm -hmm. and Democrats, people want to trust again. And uh, to, to tell 300,000 Virginians, well, just trust us, we're going to give you this plastic card, you're going to be a Medicaid-covered life, uh, and you're going to have better health care. Yeah. There are no studies to show that simply insuring a cohort or a group of folks results in better health care outcomes. So there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, the governor has embedded uh, Medicaid expansion, straightforward Medicaid expansion, not a waiver, not uh, anything other than that uh, in his new budget. Uh, several hundreds of millions of dollars that he's going to then turn around and use to, to uh, support other programmatic elements. So we will have um, some um, very robust discussions yeah. and, and I'm sure debate about uh, how that's going to look like and, um, and moving forward. To that point, certificate of public need has been um, a huge priority for Delegate O'Bannon, yourself, and many others uh, throughout the General Assembly. And it ties to that point based on access and lowering costs. And many of our physicians are concerned about the certificate of public need program for years that has been in play and, and really hurt many of their ability to expand their practice, to set up an ambulatory surgery center, to provide an MRI, the lower cost, potentially greater access for many of the patients out there. Where do you envision COPN being either tied to those issues regarding Medicaid or just separate in general and see that there could be some potential reform on the horizon? So it will certainly be a separate issue going forward. Um, Delegate Bobby Orrock, who chairs our Health, Welfare, and Institutions Committee, uh, Bobby and, and John O'Bannon as well and others have for a number of years realized and recognized and uh, tried to um, communicate that the COPN, the Certificate of Public Need process, is, is just, it's, it's fatally flawed. Mm -hmm. It just simply doesn't work. It's not a free market process. Um, and yet they've met uh, brick wall after brick wall. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is this year, um, uh, uh, Chairman Orock is going to uh, take up uh, bills by exception, meaning if a particular uh, district, a particular area right. wishes to um, not require a Certificate of Public Need, then they'll submit a bill uh, to just not to get reform or, or replace the COPN process in its in its entirety across the Commonwealth, mm -hmm. but just for that one locality. Right. If there is a need in that locality for for particular services, right. um, neonatal intensive care unit is right. a great example. More psychiatric beds. Right. These are these are issues that have been turned down here in the last number of years yeah. uh, because for the COPN process. On the other hand, there is also a direct link with, um, with Medicaid, and it is in this arena. Um, managed care is going to just determine a lot of the economics going forward. Whether we right. like it or not, it's just the reality. Right. And um, the certificate of a public need process, um, it, in some sense, artificially elevates some of the pricing that we're seeing for CAT scans and MRI scans, and ambulatory surgery, and so forth in our communities. So I think those market forces are going to, uh, to come to bear as... Uh, the economies um, uh, work these things out. So it's very difficult to argue it's purely a free market uh, economic issue. Uh, on the other hand, um, it certainly isn't sustainable in its current form. 
Right, and um, uh, as we've talked about um, COPN and other means, I wanted to throw out just kind of a stat. Physician fees account for only eight cents of the healthcare dollar. You look at a primary care doctor making about $185,000 average. Surgeons making about $306,000. A nonprofit hospital CEO makes about $596,000. And so as we look at these things and we adjust our agenda and look at Medicaid expansion and COPN, I thought it was interesting that we would share those types of tidbits because it really points to the fact that everybody has for years constantly blamed the physician, right? You're the reason that potentially everything's so expensive, you're making so much money, but I thought that was a very interesting stat and wanted to share that with you and if you had any comments on that. So there's one, one reality and that is the fiscal impact or the financial remuneration that we get. We as individuals, we as companies, as businesses, in whichever, whatever space, yeah. whatever industry and so forth. How much do you get paid for your goods or your services? There's another concept, and that is the economic return that you get, or the valuation that it serves to you. And that's always been one of the challenges in healthcare. Uh, physicians, nurses, and so forth, uh, they've, uh, out of the goodness and the gracious of their heart, they do a lot of, of basically free services, and they right. have for many, many years. So it's much, much more than just simply, at the end of the day, what your salary is. Uh, there's a lot that fulfills an individual who chooses uh, the healthcare arena. So, um, and we have, that's just a practical reality. There's a lot of graciousness um, in, in our communities. But I think that's getting called into question, particularly in this, uh, over the last 20 years or so, in this evolution of healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. We have 30 systems statewide. Uh, they've very much horizontally integrated, meaning they've purchased uh, primary care practices and some specialty practices in the space of their industry. But now they're starting to vertically integrate. Right. They'll buy, uh, they're buying healthcare plans, or buying into healthcare plans, uh, things that are not necessarily they're related to healthcare, but they're not necessarily the direct provision of healthcare. And I think that's uh, creating some uh, economic um, uh, opportunities, but some challenges as well uh, for these healthcare systems. So there's this flux right now. We've mm -hmm. gone from. Um, um, and probably a, a great example is in mental health specifically. Mm -hmm. We've gone from a model 50, 60 years ago of large institutional sort of big block, big buildings and mm -hmm. putting lots of folks in, uh, housing them in these large spaces. We transitioned to 40 uh, community service boards around the Commonwealth that uh, are quasi-governmental. They're not direct agencies yeah. of the government, but uh, they serve to address those same needs. And now we're evolving into providing that care at the community level. Right. Well, those transitions are really monumental. They're major yeah. transitions in the healthcare arena, in the mental health care arena, and I think we're seeing a lot of the same uh, in uh, physical health care as well. Interesting. Um, in regards to scope of practice, for years, you know, you've been a part of this battle, whether it be in Lynchburg or Richmond. Um, we're seeing optometrists looking to expand their scope to do potentially surgical procedures, things that ophthalmologists were trained and educated to do. We're seeing nurse practitioners wanting to practice independently. Um, and the physicians feel on the defense about that, obviously. Uh, spent a significant amount of time, money, resources, and really value their education that they received in understanding the patient and understanding um, what to do in, in case of an incident or an emergency. Um, tell us a little bit about your perspective on scope and, and how do you see the next 10 years, not maybe just this year or the next couple of years, but how do you envision scope of practice changing or evolving and what should physicians do to prepare for it? So here's the challenge and the challenge is we simply don't have enough providers of health care 
um, in, in particularly in certain areas of our commonwealth, south side of Virginia, southwest Virginia, along the valley. We just simply don't have enough providers, doctors, nurses, hospitals, systems, whether it's emergency rooms, obstetric services, right. psychiatric services. So on the one hand, we've got to do something to fill that void. And it is real, it's palpable, and we certainly hear about it in an ever a louder um, um, voice every year in the General Assembly. Right. On the other hand, medicine is a very complex and, a, and a, sometimes a very complicated science and an industry. You don't just simply uh, turn in a key or, or, or uh, pay your four years of college tuition and you can come out and you can um, go do surgery as I did or whatever. You, you, it takes a long time and it's not just simply uh, seeing and, and the, the different procedures or, or participating in those procedures. It's learning about people and it's learning about how um, we need to interact better to better understand someone to actually be able to improve their health. And that just simply takes, takes time. One of the challenges of saying, well, we're just going to allow others that have some uh, very good education. Right. Um, and I've told many of our folks, beware what you ask for, you right. may get it, particularly in the liability arena. Um, with medical malpractice being what it is, um, uh, some, we, sometimes we have a very litigious uh, society, and I'm not sure that they're going to be uh, willing to accept um, perhaps not ideal outcomes, uh, mm -hmm. simply because the provider uh, didn't have an MD at the end of the night. Right, right. Let's go to the opioid crisis. I wanted to read you some stats here. The number of patients receiving opioid prescriptions dropped by over 40% in the first quarter following the enactment of the regulations. The regulations were those that you and many others supported uh, passing and said, look, if we're going to um, uh, uh, have folks who are the prescribers and um, we're going to limit what they can and can't do or have PMP checks. We need to keep that within the hands of the prescribers, particularly at the Board of Medicine. Um, and thank you for that support behind those regulations. Sure. Prescriptions over 100 MME have dropped over 18% from 2016 to 2017. PMP checks have gone up 188% from 2014 to 2016. What do you see as more that we can do to help combat the opioid and heroin crisis? Physicians have taken a strong lead in this. We've had the regulations implemented for just under a year. We're still kind of evaluating these statistics and trying to understand what's a better process and way for physicians to help alleviate pain for their patients, but without getting them in a, in a predicament of potentially uh, having them addicted to these opioids, which are highly addictive, which for years I think physicians were not aware of that and, and uneducated based on a variety of different stakeholders. What do you see for the future as, as the next steps for, for, for the crisis and what can we do as physicians to help? So if you peel away the, uh, the, the onion leaves uh, or the onion uh, layers of the prescription monitoring program, what it fundamentally provides is better connectivity between databases mm -hmm. such that if you have a patient in your emergency room and uh, you've written up a prescription for uh, some narcotics and now they show up in another emergency room with another physician, because they share those databases through the prescription monitoring plan, there's a much better program, there's a much better um, two-way communication between physicians that otherwise uh, they not so, don't so share the same office or, or even within the same hospital system. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because of that, there is a much, uh, there's a better right-sizing of, uh, of, the, of the numbers of the prescriptions and the amount of these medications that are out there. I think sometimes we take for granted that um, 
uh, folks will um, will follow our, our instructions and uh, take our me- take their medicines uh, prudently and reasonably. And unfortunately, uh, there are some folks that just simply take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question, but the uh, some of the opioids that have hit the streets are causing uh, some very very serious um, uh, public health concerns. So that we we cannot ignore and we cannot um, um, simply turn away from. On the other hand, there's a balance there because um, you, you, there are some patients that are going to need more than seven days mm-hmm. of narcotics. There's some folks that um, um, will will utilize the medicines differently in their bodies so that they need larger doses of it and so forth. And so it can't. I don't see that it can easily be cookbook. You can't just simply say if this then that. Right. Um, and that's again now getting back to years of experience and the training that our a physician community and nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, and so forth that are writing these prescriptions um, have. So the challenge is get, getting the right size. On the one hand, we can't be overly burdensome and define for physicians how to practice. The Code of Virginia is not the place mm-hmm. to prescribe medical practice. Um, on the other hand, uh, the physicians need to know the, uh, the, the, the severity of this and the extent of it. And again, it affects us all. It's not just in uh, certain areas of the Commonwealth that um, it, it affects us all. Absolutely. So, Garrett, thank you for your commitment to physicians sure. and the General Assembly and the Commonwealth. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Today. Absolutely. Well, thank you sure. so much. Absolutely. Doc. Thanks for having me.